4: I need double.
0: Your Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on three CR eight five five AM. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leila. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, it is. We were just like uh, rocking out to the little like DJ. <laughs> scratches a little DJ. No, 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 no. I got it I feel like we could never um we can never lose that intro cuz it's just so funny and beautiful it's <laughs> you know that's that's authentic community radio right there absolutely um how are you both doing this week
4: I feel a bit run down. I have uh, uni assignments to do and I have work and, you know, classic adolescent things, but it's my last year of my master's and then it'll be over.
0: Um, are there many adolescents in master's? Uh,
4: yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I'm the same height as one, so I'm just waiting. Yeah, it's for my growth spurt one day. Uh,
0: yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Actually, I, this morning I got told, uh, when I got uh, picked up my coffee, that I had, oh, Something like a like a monster grip or something because I was holding two, <laughs> two, two, two coffees in one hand and I felt extremely gender affirmed. <laughs> um, how about you, Leila? Um, yeah,
3: I'm good. I've had quite a relaxing week actually. Well, um, oh, it's been a bit busy,
0: but I've been organised, so that's new. <laughs> busy but organised sounds busy but organised sounds relaxing. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. like you know, then you can sort of get everything done and then you know, have some time to decompress. That's right. Lots of time for snacks. Oh, I love that. I Amazing. Love that. We love <laughs> a snack. Um, all right. Well, we've got a big show as usual today. Maybe we'll jump into a rundown of what we're going to be talking about. Yes. First, we'll be speaking
4: with Lavi Karan, who is a major-based trans goddess and an upcoming producer, multimedia artist, and changemaker. Through storytelling and the practice of culture, Navi Karan wants to support the care for land, elders and children to come. She'll be performing next week at 10 and 11 on Thursday, the 2nd of June, and then DJing from 4 to 8 the next Friday, 3rd of June. And both events will be at Rainbow.
3: And then we're going to be hearing from Gerald, who is a filmmaker, writer, poet and musician uh, and volunteer community organiser for Filipino youth organisation Anak Bayan Melbourne. Um, And we're going to be discussing the impact of the recent
0: Philippines presidential election. Excellent. And then we're going to hear from Tuffy, who is a campaigner with Gungro Environment Center, or GECO, and Tuffy speaking with us about concerns with the Andrews Government Sustainable Forest Timber Amendment Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill 2022, which was introduced into the Victorian Parliament on Tuesday and poses a serious threat to forest protests in the state. And then finally, we're going to be hearing from Nick Reimer, who's the president of the National Tertiary Education Union's University of Sydney branch. And Nick is speaking with us about the strike actions that have been taken by academic workers at the university. And there was a 48-hour strike on May 11th and 12th, and then again a 24-hour strike in solidarity with First Nations colleagues on May 24th to demand fair remuneration and job security. So massive, massive show as usual, and we're so excited to bring it to you
5: online and in cinema Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs as well as the best Australian content Check out the lineup and book today at mdf.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a
0: 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR eight five five AM, and these are the news headlines for Thursday, the twenty-sixth of may, twenty twenty two. So first up, Clearview AI, a controversial facial recognition firm, has been fined $13.3 million by the UK privacy watchdog following a joint investigation with its Australian counterpart. Now, Clearview AI sells a facial recognition app, which allows users to upload a photo and match it against a database of three billion photos, which it automatically scrapes from various social media platforms and online sources. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, or OAIC, found that Clearview's collection of sensitive biometric information of Australians breached Australian privacy laws. A number of Australian police forces had tried out the app, feeding images of themselves, suspects and victims into the system. The privacy watchdog found that the Australian Federal Police had breached privacy rules in using Clearview but by not properly assessing the associated risks.
4: In other news, today, May 26th, marks 25 years since the bringing them home report was first tabled in federal parliament giving voice to the experiences of stolen generation survivors the report made 54 recommendations including repatriations for survivors while most states and territories have introduced systems to compensate survivors state governments in western australia and queensland are yet to act organizations and individuals are calling for action by state government Womong and newer man Tony Hanson will be presenting a petition to his state government in Western Australia calling for action. The Healing Foundation, a national body supporting Stolen Generation Survivors, has also called governments to act. Also in headlines, the Morrison government delayed a
3: key electricity pricing update until after the election, leaving voters in the dark over upcoming electricity bill changes. The Australian Energy Regulator, AER, has been required to release its so-called Default Market Offer, DMO, on the 1st of May each year since the price safety net was introduced in July 2019. But last month, the Morrison Government amended regulations so the new price of, so the new price for the coming year to be released later this week. Coalition leaders argued during their campaign that power prices were lower under their management. However, a spokesperson for the outgoing Energy Minister, Angus
0: Taylor, said he rejected the claims of a delay for political reasons. And finally in the headlines today, Interim Home Affairs Minister provided an update on Wednesday indicating that the Murugupan family will shortly return home to Biloela. And this is Jim Chalmers. So the Morrison government had previously refused to allow the family permanent residency because Tamil asylum seekers Nades and Priya Murugapan arrived in Australia by boat and before the election, Labour promised to grant the family a visa and allow them return to to return to the central Queensland town. And Chalmers has hoped to discuss arrangements for the family's return once Anthony Albanese has returned from Tokyo. But just to add on to that, uh, in the first days of the Labour government, we have already seen a boat of Sri Lankan asylum seekers turned back, uh, which goes against the uh, that goes against our commitment against non-refoulement and breaches international law. And you can find out more about this, I guess, by looking up stuff on Human Rights Watch, who've written a bit about it. Um, And it's really uh, setting quite a concerning precedent for this incoming government. So these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 26th of May. Inez, you had a public health announcement.
4: Yes, I do. Um, I don't know why my voice is cracking. I (laughs) am finally becoming an adolescent. Um, (laughs) Well, the Australian Medical Association has actually called for an increase in the voluntary use of masks because case numbers continue to keep going up. Winter is coming and we need to stop ignoring COVID. Um, And the poll conducted by The Guardian in August of 2021 um, stated that, you know, only 3% of respondents felt that 5,000 or more COVID-related deaths per year would be acceptable. However, we have actually surpassed that milestone in the first four months of this year alone. And each day, an average of 45,000 Australians are reporting cases of COVID. So please continue to wear your mask, take care of each other, um, because not everybody will get COVID the same way. And we have to look after everybody else so we can continue to um, form community and look after each other and hopefully get back to a sense of um, support.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're going to be speaking with Professor Nancy Baxter from the Melbourne School of Population Health um, next week uh, to, to discuss that conversation article, which Inez was speaking from just now. Um, and it'll be really important to discuss that because I think there has been so little focus um you know broadly in terms of government initiatives to actually roll out a comprehensive public health strategy that takes into account both the flu and also um also the you know covid-19 which continues um Although I will say that Anastasia Palaszczuk, the uh, Queensland Premier, has recently announced that flu vaccines will be free for all Queenslanders because of the spike in flu cases they're seeing. So hopefully that sets a precedent. And one last reminder is that today the coronial inquest into the death of Veronica Nelson in custody will hear evidence from Tracey Jones, General Manager of Dame Phyllis Frost uh, Centre Prison, and Dr Foti Blar, Chief Medical Officer, Correct Care Australia, so uh, on, on Friday, tomorrow, which is the final day, is Christine Fuller's testimony, and Christine is the deputy CEO of Correct Care Australasia, and the family is asking that people please come to court to support Veronica's family on these last two vital last days if you can, and please spread the word, let others know, it's 65 Kavanaugh Street, South Bank, the coroner's court. Um, And you can find out more information and updates, as well as if you're not able to attend in person but want to attend remotely. The Dajawa Foundation are posting links, as are the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. So you can look up D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A Foundation on Twitter and also Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. So please show up. uh, Justice for Veronica Nelson.
6: Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon.
7: We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
5: Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong.
7: The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
6: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 8377,
7: or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours.
6: 3CR. Keep, Keep community, community strong.
7: strong.
1: A caution to First Nations peoples that this ad contains sensitive content about the Stolen Generations. For many Aboriginal Victorian community members, the trauma from forced removal still runs deep. In consultation with community, the Victorian Government has developed the Stolen Generations reparations package. We acknowledge there is still more to be done to address injustice experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. For more information, contact 1-800-566-071 or please visit the website. A 3CR
6: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah,
8: nah, Yenna Pasaran is a new weekly programme on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Altaroa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30 pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
4: And now uh, we are joined by an extremely special guest, uh, Navi Karan, who is a Minjin based trans goddess and an upcoming producer, multimedia artist, and change maker Through storytelling and the practice of culture, Navi Karan wants to support the care of the land, elders, and children to come. Thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you today?
9: I am so fantastic. Thank you so much for having me.
4: No, of course, absolute pleasure. Um, I cannot wait for this incredible uh, interview time. (laughs) I don't know what is going on in my brain, Uh, but I'm going to restart and ask maybe the first question. Uh, Maybe would you mind starting with what drew you to being a performer and your recent journey into the arts?
9: Thank you. Um, It's actually a pretty shallow story. I really liked the attention people gave me when I went up on stage and performed really and Mm -hmm. that went on for a few years before I started realizing that storytelling is a responsibility and the practice of storytelling is the practice of culture and because especially when you look at the impacts of colonization, especially through the violence and erasure, the practice of storytelling from people of culture has been taken away and so realizing that um I am one of the last few storytellers when it comes directly um, into my lineage. And I decided to take it on as a role and a responsibility.
4: Yeah, I think it's, um, I think being, <laughs> I don't think that's a shallow thing at all. I think wanting attention and um, wanting to be on stage and, and enjoying the love, I think is also a beautiful thing. And um, <laughs> being able to understand that storytelling is a responsibility is a really beautiful you know, gift that you hold. And I know that uh, you recently ventured into DJing, and Mm. as a fellow DJ, I think I can see the scene, like, shifting towards a community focus and artists who are truly authentic are being celebrated. And I think it's also helped me come into my own as an artist. Um, Mm. Would you like to maybe talk about why you wanted to take this path and what you're excited about?
9: Absolutely. Absolutely music is so fascinating and I think music has so much power I predominantly wanted to begin DJing because I wanted to play the music that I grew up with and a lot of it was music from India and it gave me an opportunity to take space really as a trans person and a trans brown person and I very initially decided to predominantly focus on South Asian music, especially because we are in an age where music is so accessible. And it is it is unlike any other times where, you know, you can just simply go online and be able to download a song and then mix it into something else. And I quite enjoy the magic of that, and especially to be able to perform that. I feel like a magician live, when, you know, I'm just plugging something in and trying to mix all of this music and sound, and especially to take care of your audience. I I I truly feel like an auntie every time I'm either on a stage or I'm DJing, because I feel so damn responsible for what I'm doing and to care for everyone who is there and to just create a good space, because especially we are alive at a time, you know, we, we want to pretend the pandemic is over. We want to pretend we are not in a climate crisis. And, you know, the major systems around us that are quite hectic, and, you know, what? where does that put us as storytellers and as DJs and as mu- musicians? And to me, that answer comes as, you know, as a place of care and a place of nourishment.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing that um, you see being on stage and, like, remixing all the tracks, it really is, like, taking care of the crowd. And I know that... In- a lot of DJ, um, lingo, it's like crowd control, um, which makes it sound like you <laughs> have some sort of strange superpower. But really, you are just genuinely looking after everybody, like an auntie. Um, so next time, maybe we should all just be calling DJs our favourite aunties. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
4: <laughs> um, I think also following on from this, I know that you know selecting all your tracks and like digging through the depths of a record store for vinyls, or going on some <laughs> random internet trail to find the perfect remix that matches with your perfect song um, is genuinely one of the best parts of DJing, and I think. You know, as you've described, blending songs from different cultures together to create um, a beautiful atmosphere. Uh, I'm curious to know how you go about, you know, selecting your tracks and where do you find them?
9: That's such a good question. I think to me it comes down to intersectionality. I, In all of my work, really, I'm very curious about whose voice or who is not present in the room and what does it take to make these spaces accessible one of the other things that I'm really curious about exploring through teaching is to give space and representation to voices um, that we don't usually hear in a club or in a public or in a space that you know where people can be empowered not just the artists but also you know the people within the audiences Brisbane Mianjin has a huge South Asian population and we never see them at events, we never see them at theater shows, we never see them at parties. But they're there, you know. And so to be able to um, find music that I know will cater to that audience. um, I also think, you know, when I look for music, I'm looking for music that has magic, that has masala, that has taste to it, that is, you know, will add more than just to the vibe will give people a way of exploring laughter and joy and movement in a way that steps away from shame, that steps away from insecurity. And so when I'm looking for music, it it predominantly happens to be um, women of color, black and indigenous women that I'm playing. And then it's really about creating the vibe.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing that um, you want to find the songs with the extra masala is very important. Um, Mm. You need to (laughs) put out your first mix and just call it Masala Mix Extraordinary. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I also know in preparation for the interview, I've been listening to your Spotify, which we will also link, which everybody needs to listen to, I was listening to the songs Where Are You From and If My Genders Were The Entire Solar System. And what really stands out to me is that they feel so different musically and in production, but what stands out is that how seamlessly you're able to, I guess, blend poetry and expression and music to create that like feeling that is completely immersive, that feels like you can't look away from uh, or not feel. And I think... These songs are truly a gift, and uh, could you maybe speak on what the songs mean to you and the process of writing and producing them?
9: Thank you so much for listening. That's so sweet and really appreciate it the All of the credits for the music goes to my partner and who's also my music producer, Levi Kola. and we spend a lot of time having conversations. We argue, we prod, we explore, we tear things apart until we get this creation that you know fits with both very from and solar systems. we really didn't know what it would sound like, and we just kept you know tearing and tearing and tearing it apart until we kind of arrived at a song uh, at a sound. We are really curious about the potential of sound and what sound what can happen with sound and where we can take it. We, oh gosh, the process of songwriting and producing. We are, so both of these songs, Where You From and Solar System, are part of a bigger work called Brown Church, which is a massive theater work that we're in the process of producing. We are not allowed to say yet where we are performing it, but it is happening in September. I can say that much <laughs> in Mianjin. Um, And all of the music will be available as an album just before the show happens. Um, I think this is the first time I'm announcing this publicly. Um, And the process of writing it is essentially we want to tell a big story of queer liberation, of black and indigenous and people of color liberation, and what that looks like when we intentionally build anti-racist spaces that are not just you know, anti-racist for the sake of being anti-racist, but, you know, contextualizes us as storytellers within bigger movements of change and shifts. And so we have a massive narrative we're trying to tell through this album and this theater work. And and these pieces have been, you know, some of this has already been written as a part of Brown Church, which we also performed last year, um as a from a collection of poems that I've written. And then it's just Levi and I figuring out what would sound best musically.
4: Yeah, it sounds... First thing, I want to acknowledge how wonderful it is that you announced Brown Church on this 3CR-exclusive Thursday (laughs) breakfast. (laughs) Um, But it's so... I I feel like everything that you are talking about in terms of your music or theatre production is all about just making people feel and making people feel seen and bringing people together and in a really authentic way. And I just want to, you know commend you for that because it's not an easy thing to do and also to stay true to that throughout your entire process. Um, Absolutely.
9: I also want to say I really appreciate how much, um, I really appreciate you saying that because I think the journey has been quite isolating and is often isolating for people of colour, for queer trans people and disabled folks Um, and to be seen by others from the community is really appreciated and I think it sort of um, validates the work and you know it kind of gives more purpose
4: to it. Yep. Uh, I think the purpose is found, uh, so clearly is when you're listening to your music or, um, seeing you perform. I think it's hard, (laughs) I think it's hard to miss it. So, um, thank you for the work that you continue to do. And I can't wait to go to all of it, (laughs) honestly, and uh, promote it as much as possible. Um, I think lastly, we know that you are performing on Thursday, the 2nd of June. Um, at 10 and 11 and then, wait, is that right? Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, 10 yeah. and 11 on You're Thursday right. the 2nd and then DJing at 4 to 8, um, Friday the 3rd of June and both events will be at Rainbow. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about these events and how we can show up and support you with Big Bells on?
9: <laughs> Yo, I'm so excited. So this will be my first gig at NAM. It is, I'm so, I feel so lucky that um, Rainbow is hosting me on both days for me to come and perform. Both my partner and I are moving to Nam at the end of the year. And the goal was to start finding people that we can hang out with, people we can make music with, and obviously spaces where we can perform and share art. Both the gigs, so the gig on the 2nd of June at Rainbow, I'm performing both of these pieces that we just talked about. Um, as a part of an event called Surf. And on the 3rd of June, I'll be DJing a four hours set. That is so exciting. I'm really excited to hold this space for four hours. Um, yeah, I, 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 I part of me also doesn't want to keep away a, too much because yes. it is my maiden, you know, performance and I kind of want to keep it special. So you kind of have to come out there and see me live, I suppose.
4: I guess we'll just have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But thank you so much again for being on the show and bringing such, uh, really warm and inviting energy and being vulnerable and opening up and, uh, you can hear all the excitement in your, your voice every time that you speak. So I just want to thank you again for your time. Um, And if you have anything else to add, maybe we'll go play your song, um, If My Genders Were the Entire Soul System.
9: Thank you so much, and you have a good morning, Ines.
4: Okay, thank you, Navi Have a good day. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that was an interview with Navi Curran, who's a Manchester-based trans goddess and an upcoming producer, artist, change maker, and DJ. And now we will play the song "If My Genders Were the Entire Solar System."
6: If
10: men are from Mars women are from venus then i am the entire solar system and beyond as seen through my mother's eyes if men are from mars and women are from venus then i am the genders of my ancestors revolving around the sun orients me to do what i am set to do this is my orbit I am the people that I come from, as held together by my mother to be the mother that I am. If men are from Mars and women are from Venus, then I am beyond this binary. I am multiplicity. I am love. This. Is spiritual travel if people are from here and others are from there, then I am the entire rainforest breathing life at the sky's filtering light I am heart I am stardust and a beckon I am the survival of intergenerational desecration I am healing I am realizing I am grounding. Orbit. I am healing. I am realizing. I am grounding. I am multiplicity.
1: Accent of women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent to women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the...
4: How the can conflict? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where, are too, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives?
5: Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR.
4: And you just heard uh, If My Genders Were the Entire Solar System by Nabi Karan. And now we're going to our next interview. Hello.
3: We're going to be chatting with Gerald, who is a volunteer community organiser for Filipino youth organisation Anak Melbourne and migrant workers organisation Migrant Melbourne. He's also a filmmaker, writer, poet and musician. He migrated to Australia from the Philippines along with his family in 2012 when he was just 11 years old and has been engaged in various forms of activism ever since. Hello, Gerald. How are you going this morning?
8: I'm all right. Good morning.
3: Good morning. How are you feeling? Are you awake and ready? We've got a bit Uh, of a... Yep.
8: Just ready to go to work. I just finished this interview, then I'm off to my bus replacement.
3: Oh no, the bus replacements are a real, they're a real trial. (laughs) Um, So, Anak Bayan is a youth-based, national democratic, comprehensive mass organisation that seeks to arouse, organise and mobilise young Filipino workers, students, professionals, migrants and national minorities in order to merge national democracy with the powerful movement of the toiling masses. Um, Gerald, can you tell me a bit more about the work that Anakbayan does in NAM and how you got involved with them?
8: Yep, um, Anakbayan's role in NAM um, has been um, very integral in the movement in the Philippines because it seeks to mobilize the youth in the diaspora in a way that connects them to their homeland and also to engage them in the struggles that are going on in the homeland and to explain to them that they are not separate with what's going on. Uh, back home or that they themselves are product of the struggles that are being waged um, back home. So in terms of what we do here in, in Nam, um, we often organise a lot of um, cultural events, such as um, mm-hmm. um, film showings, also theatre plays and a lot of other stuff along with organising and also um, involving the youth in the diaspora in engaging in community and also um, showing them the importance of community organising in mobilising um, the people uh, who are here as part of the diaspora to mobilise them in the issues that are affecting the Filipino people and also the issues that are affecting um, other nationalities and other ethnicities and also the struggles that are going on, for example, nationally here in um, so-called Australia with First Nations with First Nations issues, with uh, refugee issues and so on and so forth.
3: Mm, I think community organising is really important for us diaspora um, in connecting to where we live and supporting each other. Um, So the next question is a bit dense. I (laughs) During my research, I actually found that the political systems in the Philippines are pretty complex. Um, From my understanding, political dynasties or family groups in leadership positions with political and economic dominance emerged as a result of the power vacuum left by the Spanish colonial regime after the Philippine Revolution in 1896. Could you speak to how the Marcos regime, which um, happened 40 years ago, examples the problematic power dynamics of political dynasties and why the continuation of this political tradition is an ongoing threat to democracy in the Philippines?
8: Mm. Um, to understand the political traditions in the Philippines, more specifically political dynasties, I think we have to examine, the, as you said before, the country's past, uh, past and present colonial mm. um, reality yeah. and also um, the dominance of U.S. imperialism, for example, in, in, in our economy, in our culture, and also in our politics. Um, the political dynasties and also um, the political system in of itself is a product of the domination of u s imperialism in the Philippines and also it goes down to the two issues that are um, that are mainly affecting the Filipino people which is the question of land um eighty um seventy percent of the Filipino people are, um, are belong in the peasant class meaning they are the ones who deal the land yet ninety five percent of that class or I'm not sure if my figure is correct, but most most, um, people in that class do not have their own land, do not till their own land. There is a monopoly on land in the Philippines, and also the lack of national industrialization in the Philippines um, allows uh, for this kind of politics to exist um, in terms of, uh, when people are starving, when people are under such a colonial form of education, wow. when people are under such form of um, poverty extreme form of poverty, um, we do not expect the Filipino people to even um, um, inform um, inform themselves about the election so even um, be um, critically aware of who's running in the election. So this is uh, all a part of the machinery um, in which um, US imperialism dominates the Philippines, in which big landlords dominate the Philippines, in which big businessmen, um, mostly um, foreign corporations, dominate the Philippines, and they benefit from this kind of system that, that exists in the country. Um, so this... Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't think the political system in the Philippines is really complex. It all boils down, I think... Um, to the monopoly on land and also the lack of national industrialization. And and lastly, I think um, it boils down to um, the dominance of imperialism in the Philippines.
3: Mm, yeah, thank you. That's really eye opening. And I think, like, looking at other places like South Asia, Southeast Asia, I've found that um, the different layers of colonialism tend to exploit pre-existing power dynamics and yeah it can really most of it can be put down to um the spread of like westernized capitalism capitalism which becomes a real issue when there's um vulnerabilities after like initial colonial domination mm. um so gerald you describe yourself as a descendant or survivor of the marcos regime 40 years prior so Can I ask, what's your main concern about Marcos Jr., a.k.a. BBM, um, his return to power, and how do you think it will impact those living in the Philippines as well as the wider diaspora, such as yourself?
8: Yep, um, I think um, I would describe first um, my family's experience within the Marcos dictatorship, so just a trigger warning or a um, content warning for um, people listening. Um my grandfather was imprisoned and tortured during the martial law regime. His siblings were also imprisoned and tortured. But most specifically what happened to um to my grandfather's father, my great uncle um was um, horrific in terms of when they found him, um they found him they found his body dumped in front of a municipal hall. His teeth were extracted, his arms and legs were broken, he sustained multiple body wounds, and the only way they could really identify him was through his wedding ring. So this um, um, this uh, exemplifies the brutality of the Marcos regime that they they consciously are trying to erase this history, I'm trying to erase um, trying to erase this um, particular history that is very brutal, that is very horrific, uh, that is very horrific, that is very repressive, and. It, as if uh, martial law victims are still um, are still not alive, as if martial law victims were just a myth. Mm. Well, just coming from my um, my art in our family, um, seeing another Marcos uh, in power definitely triggers that kind of generational trauma that um that we have been accustomed to as a as a Filipino people. It definitely is painful to see another Marcos uh in power, but also it um it kinda triggers uh uh as it triggers a generational trauma, it also triggers a form of generational resistance in which um We, as a Filipino people, have a long history of resistance against colonial powers, against U.S. imperialism, against local reaction, and we will continue that um, during this um, another Marcos regime. And they are foolish to think that that just because another Marcos in power, that he will not be ousted just like his father did in 1986 in the streets of El Um I think we have a very good chance, and also I'm very hopeful in the in the future that Marcos Jr. will be ousted just like Marcos Jr. did in the streets of the uh, of the Filipino people in
3: 1986. Mm, his crimes were truly horrific, and um, yeah, I guess. It's important that we remember, um, so many Filipino people are survivors and are still fighting, um, this kind of political regime. So yeah, it's very important work. Um, so my second question, my, sorry, second last question is actually about the kind of disinformation, um, you know, you were saying it's, it's quite hard to get um, clear information leading up to uh, elections and, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a bit about how Western media really played quite a big role in endorsing and romanticising the Marcos family regime. Um, they were featured in the like of Lifestyle magazine and I know, I think Imelda Marcos is in the Guinness Book of Records for having the okay. biggest shoe collection, which is quite—it's—it's it's obscene, I would say. Okay. Yeah, because it's really just glamorising um, that ill-begotten wealth. Yeah. Um, so, in conjunction with this kind of endorsement from the Western media, the spread of more recent disinformation um, via Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube uh, has rallied huge support for the pro-BBM campaign. Um, What can people, in particular young folk preparing to vote or just wanting to get more informed, do to arm themselves against this copious disinformation? Like, Can you suggest any podcasts or news and politics platforms that our listeners could check out?
8: Mm. Um, In terms of... um um, Western media, we have to remember that marcos um, the Marcos dictatorship was directly supported uh, by the United States and was only dropped really when Marcos senior was not good for the image of the United States mm. so there is no surprise that there was um, there was a form of uh, um, glorification of the Marcos regime in the Western media because he is a product of um of Western powers himself in terms of um, um, this information i think um the battle um that happened today um uh, in in these elections was a battle in social media and mm-hmm. i think it um kind of it kind of speaks to the um, fragility of the social media um, platforms that we use and also the disinformation that can quickly spread um through this information using these social media platforms without even being penalized uh, by these social media platforms uh, so i think especially specifically as the youth um uh, in the way that we can inform ourselves is that we have to preserve our books, preserve the books that are now being disappeared by the Marcos regime, um, preserve. Uh, the knowledge of martial law victims and also listen um, to martial law victims when they speak and not dismiss this, um, dismiss these stories. But also I would just like to say um, um, specifically to the youth that we should not be dismissive of, of the Filipino people. I don't think the election is the fault of the Filipino people. The Filipino people are not to blame. The system is, is just rotten, right? So the Filipino people with... Um, with um, all the disinformation that they have consumed, I don't think that they are to blame um, in this election. So I think specifically the intellectual class, they need, we need to get off our high horse. We need to understand why disinformation is so prevalent in the Philippines. And we need to understand that people are under a colonial form of education. People are under such extreme form of poverty and exploitation that we do not. How can we expect the Filipino people to vote properly when they are so impoverished, when they are so um, fed, um, fed with this colonial form of education? So we should be directing our anger and um, we should be informing ourselves against the system, not against the Filipino people.
2: Mm,
3: yeah, it sounds like it really is a coercive system that takes advantage of people. Um, and I can understand why there's so much struggle to access clear information when there's so many forces like social media just on top of everything else. You know, social media has a lot to answer for as well um, with how they platform different voices. And, yeah, I think your point about platforming martial law victims is really pertinent and we should all be thinking about that and actively trying to seek out, um, I guess, more historically accurate, um, Mm. accounts of political histories. Mm. Um, so my final question, um, is kind of about all the great work that the people, Filipino people have done in, um, you know, enacting resistance for so long. And, you know, there are some really talented, um, people and organizations working in this field. Um, So within the Philippines, volunteer-led campaigns have shown to be a powerful way of challenging political dynasties such as BBM or the Marcos regime because they enable outlying leadership groups to rally support without the use of these coercive campaign tactics such as payouts and disinformation narratives. Um, So what can listeners in Nam do to assist this ongoing resistance and how might we support the Filipino diaspora during this challenging time?
8: Um, I would just like to, um, I think I would um, specifically address the Filipino youth in the diaspora, or just the Filipino diaspora in general, I think we have to remind ourselves that the election is just one form of political participation that we can do. Right? We do not have to wait for the next election to do anything, mm. or we do not have to wait for the next election to do something. We have to go back to our, we have to go back to our own communities. We have to organize our communities. We have to um, take to the streets. The streets is the arena in which people power is realized, and I think. Taking to the streets is the most viable form of political action that we can do here, specifically us as a diaspora in NAM, right? So we, we have to keep in mind that the election. It's not even a um, the election is elitist, the election is um, is for the rich and the election is not um, a viable form of struggle that we can um, that we can participate in. So um, I think my call for the diaspora and also the people who are not in the diaspora who would uh, like to stand in solidarity solidarity with the Filipino people is that we as a, we as Filipinos have a long history of resistance spanning back 500 plus years ever since Spanish colonization ever since um, U.S. imperialism, ever since Japanese colonization, and ever since um, we have been oppressed um, for so long. So we um, we know how to fight, and we should exercise that um, that power through the streets, through our communities, and only in our communities do we, um, do we harvest that power to oust another Marcos. So I think the main call here is take to the streets and also go back to our communities and organize, 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 organize.
3: Mm, And I think, yeah, it's really important to remember that you don't have to rely on those systems that are already um, so fraught with corruption to take action. Um, Thank you so much, Gerald. This has been um, such a pleasure to talk to you. And, yeah, please follow Anak Bayan on Instagram and you can find a link to um, the the form to sign up. Um, which I would encourage you to do. Become a part of it. Thank you, Gerald. See you later. Thank you so much. See you.
0: And you just heard from Gerald from Anakbayan Melbourne, and he's a filmmaker, writer, poet, musician, and volunteer community organizer for this Filipino youth organization. And you can find more about Anakbayan Melbourne's work at Anakbayan Mel, that's A N A K B A Y A N M E L on Twitter or Anak Melbourne on Instagram, and we'll pop a link in the show notes as well. And I uh, just want to say, Leela, excellent work on your first interview. <laughs> I can thank Gerald for that. <laughs> yes. Well, you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We might go to uh, a little bit more information about our Radiothon coming up in June. <laughs>
6: Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon.
7: We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
5: Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong.
0: The
1: 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
6: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 8377,
1: or
7: drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours.
6: 3CR. Keep, Keep community, community strong.
7: strong.
5: Pacific X Farno is a Pacifica LGBTIQ podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Program. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward Out of the Pan.
4: And now we are going to go to a song by Becca Hatch called Without You that was actually released yesterday, so it's uh her newest single. Uh It's called Without You, so here we go. Where do I find you?
2: Because I've been searching far and wide Oh, I'm just sick of wasting time And babe, I want to clear my mind, my mind Where do I find you? I'm calling for i okay.
5: health system in Victoria is currently undergoing transformational reform and for the first time these reforms centre people with lived experience of mental health challenges in the design and delivery of the new system. So how do we then ensure that lived experience engagement is genuine and not tokenistic and what are some of the structural changes that need to occur to encourage people with a lived experience to want to participate? These are some of the questions we will be exploring in this year's Wellways Public Lecture on Thursday May 26 at the Wheeler Centre keynote speaker is debbie hamilton a systemic mental health advocate in the evening will also include a panel discussion with lived experience and governance experts and the launch of Vimeac's consumers leading in governance pilot program this is a free event but bookings are essential to book your ticket to the in-person event or online stream visit lecture.wellways.org and follow the links to the booking page that's lecture.wellways.org wellways supports 3cr
4: You've just heard Becca Hatch, Without You, uh, who is an incredible First Nations artist. And I feel like they've been able to create a contemporary R&B scene completely on their own
0: um, and go listen to the other songs. It's because you just want to go dance around to them. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I think we need more music that kind of pumps us up. And that was a great start to the day. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855
1: a.m. A caution to First Nations peoples that this ad contains sensitive content about the stolen generations. For many Aboriginal Victorian community members, the trauma from forced removal still runs deep. In consultation with community, the Victorian Government has developed the Stolen Generations Reparations Package. We acknowledge there is still more to be done to address injustice experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. For more information, contact 1800 566 071 or please visit the website at cr Supporter.
0: you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR855 AM and we are about to go into our next interview and this is with Tuffy who is a campaigner with Gungura Environment Centre or Gecko and Tuffy speaking with us about concerns with the Andrews government sustainable forests timber amendment timber harvesting safety zones bill 2022 which was introduced into the Victorian parliament this past Tuesday and uh, poses some serious threats to forest protests in the state now, Tuffy, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's so important that we have this discussion right as this is developing because, of course, you know, we had the federal election over the weekend, and uh, we don't want this slipping under the radar so um, this past Tuesday, the 24th of May, as I mentioned, the Andrews government quietly introduced this bill, which if passed will result in significant changes to forest protest laws in Victoria to crack down on direct action. And this bill introduces, oh, sorry, includes provisions that really ramp up the criminalization of forest protests, with the government claiming that the measures are to enhance the safety and well-being of forestry workers. So maybe just to start off, if passed as is, what consequences could protesters face with this bill?
7: So basically the bill um, increases penalties up to $21,000 as well as um, 12 months imprisonment. So that's kind of like the maximum increase. Um, They've expanded... They're trying to expand the definition of a prohibited thing um, to include PVC pipes um, and metal pipes as well as um, search and seizure um, provisions um obstructing and hindering authorized person and machinery and banning provisions, which actually um the head of the department jobs, precincts, and regions can can vary themselves at their own discretion, mm. so yeah, really just like you know increase penalties and and increase um um you know jail time for this yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the, the the specific mention of PVC is like obviously to um to crack down on lock uh, lock ons. Um, yeah. So um, I'm wondering how this bill lines up with similar legislative pushes that we've seen in Queensland, New South Wales, and Tasmania over the past few years that have targeted climate justice protesters.
7: Yeah. Well, I mean the the P V C pipe straight out of the Queensland playbook. But to be honest, these laws, um, in terms of their targeting of, of forest activists and um and the com- and community concerns about their forests, um, are straight out of the the playbook from the nineties. Um, this is absolutely a pre election gambit. Um they are quaking in their boots about a green slide down here in victoria um, and so what we 're seeing is basically some smoke and mirrors using using forest activism um, as a way to demonize you know parts of um, the environment movement really and and parts of the climate movement I would say, so you know in terms of that i don 't know yeah just you know this this chilling effect across um, climate protest is is you know right into this respectability politics, where you know only if you're famous and you're rich and you can afford someone to pay for your campaign to get um get elected, and everyone else you know is is not allowed to advocate for their for themselves, their community and their future um yeah. on the streets and in the forest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the the fight to save um, you know, to save native forests and old growth forests in Victoria, obviously Gecko's been involved in for a very long time. And this is really, you know, sustained ongoing work where people are doing, you know, really grueling on the ground uh direct action to prevent the logging of some of these um, you know, really ancient forests and protecting these regions and these ecosystems. Um, So apart from the impact on protesters, what consequences do you see the Victorian bill and also other legislation nationwide having on local ecosystems such as these forests, you know, the Victorian Alpine region, for example, despite uh, Victorian government plans to phase out native forest logging by 2030? So what kind of scale of damage could we be facing?
7: We need to centre forests absolutely within the climate movement. These are our carbon stores. They, you know, pr- protect our water security. Um, you know, they protect our biodiversity for um, crop pollination for farmers. And they also provide like a huge propensity for green jobs as well. But only if we retain these forests. So... In terms of, like, the impact on on the ecosystems, if we can't advocate for the retention of these spaces, um, because, you know, ultimately, the Dan Andrews government lied. They lied to the public. They said no old growth logging was happening. It's happening everywhere still. There's over nearly 4,000 hectares that's still on, um, you know, registered to be logged right now. So... You know, the 2030, they have not changed their logging practices at all since the Black Summer bushfires. Um, they've been logging, you know, coming into loggies, recovering forests under the guise that, you know, these are, these are dead forests. They're not. They're, they're recovering and we, and we really need them. They've been logging unburnt areas, which are important refuges. Now, like, we need them to take action now, not by 2030. But now, we actually need it right now because these are critical stores. These are, these are critical for our future. So, you know, we need the climate movement and, and, and we need to position ourselves in that climate movement so that people understand that, you know, in the climate emergency, any logging is criminal of, of native forests.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it can't really be put better than that, um, this sort of, lukewarm weak commitment to phase out logging of native forests by 2030 is clearly, you know, just kicking the can down the road. And, um, so in, in Victoria, we're currently heading towards state government elections in November. And you did kind of gesture towards, um, this being a factor in the Andrews government putting this bill up now. Um, but I'm wondering if you wanted to comment further on sort of, um, you know, things that people should be looking out for in terms of, you know, whether it's the right to protest or whether it is um, a more critical analysis of the Andrews government's sort of um, attempt to, to put an eco-friendly face on, on some of their actions?
7: So in terms of what to do in the lead-up to the state election, I think we've got a pretty good mandate from the federal election that people want action on climate change. Um, I think they're shooting themselves in the foot of picking a fight with the forest movement in the lead up to the election. Um, I think, you know, we can have some confidence to act in this space, Um, you know, stopping logging on the ground and also, you know, stopping it in the polling booths as well is, is really important. They're all, you know, tools in the toolkit that we need right now. So, you know, I would really just, like, encourage people to um, take heart from the federal election. Um, Don't worry about these silly, um, you know, these silly laws that they're trying to introduce. We need to fight to protect our future and we need to use all the tools in the toolkit to be able to do that at the moment. So, yeah, I would really um, encourage people to, you know, head over to our Gecko um, Facebook page where we've got a number of, like, links from posts that where you can sign up to be part of our election campaign um, because, you know, clearly this is like an ele- a pre-election gambit and we actually want to give them their worst nightmare, which is a green flag for the environment. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you've mentioned uh, Gecko's excellent work and, uh, you know, people can visit their Facebook page, but is there uh, are there any other uh, sources that you wanted to recommend in terms of places where people can find out more information or, you know, get involved with campaigning, find out more?
7: Yes, so um, there is also a, um, a, I'll have to look it up, there is a, an event actually, it's from our Facebook page, so there's a monthly event at Black Spark um, Community Centre
2: mm-hmm.
7: um, and that's a basically like an ongoing monthly forest event. Um, the next one is on June the 7th Tuesday at 6:30. So, anyone who's interested to learn a bit more about forests and particularly, you know, the um, the role that direct action plays within the forest movement, I would really encourage them to go to that um, information session and connect with other long-term forest activists across the state. So gecko is just one player in in that group.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because I because I feel like um you know as you've mentioned a lot of people have clearly been galvanised about climate action in uh in the federal election, especially the way that they've voted in the rise in Greens votes. Um, but I think you know people might not be quite sure about exactly how to get involved. So it's really it's really great to see that there are these open sessions running where people who might not have a lot of experience but do have a lot of passion about these issues can um sort of get involved hear more from seasoned activists, and, you know, figure out how to best strategize and then take action for change. So, Tuffy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. I really appreciate it, and, um, yeah, it's such an important issue to, to have on the top of our agenda.
7: Yeah, great. Thanks so much for inviting me on.
0: No worries. And that was Tuffy from Gungara Environment Centre, or Gecko speaking with us about concerns with the Andrews government's Sustainable Forests Timber Amendment, Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill 2022, which was introduced into the Victorian Parliament on Tuesday and poses a serious threat to forest protests in the state. Now, Tuffy mentioned that there is a monthly event going on at Black Spark. This is Get Active for Forest, and it's an intro to the Forest campaign. It happens the first Tuesday of every month, so it'll be happening next Tuesday. The second, second? No. Oh, gosh. I don't know what dates are, but it'll be happening, uh, I believe, next Tuesday or. Yes. Um, it's 6.30 p.m. at Black Spark at 235A St. George's Road, Northcote, and there's a vegan dinner provided, and you can hear from grassroots forest groups about what's at stake and how to get involved. And to find out accurate information, which I unfortunately was not able to provide you with just now, you can head to facebook.com forward slash forest conservation Vic, or you can also look up Goongara Environment Center on Facebook. They're also both uh, active on Twitter, and they've got websites as well. And they're constantly putting out information about, you know, how these things are happening, up-to-date campaigns, how people can get involved. And, yeah, really important to keep an eye on this and also an eye out for potential broader um, issues around protest legislation because of course as we discussed with Anastasia from Legal Observers in New South Wales a couple of months ago with respect to the New South Wales protest laws you know they're, climbing, they're, they're cracking down on the climate justice movement but this also has broader ramifications for various other kinds of protests so here you know We can't allow for a foot to be gotten in the door. This is really something that we need to be um, scrutinising and contesting from the jump. So um, I might just lead into a little uh, community service announcement from Gecko.
4: Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species' habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakernai and Bidwell and the Naro people, and
1: that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter.
5: Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon
1: and help keep communities strong. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022.
6: To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon
1: 2022.
5: Keep community strong.
0: And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. And I am joined by Nick Reamer, who's the president of the National Tertiary Education Union's University of Sydney branch. And Nick is speaking with us about the strike actions taken by academic workers at the university from May 11th to 12th and again on the 24th of May, so earlier this week, to demand fair remuneration and job security. Nick, thanks so much for joining us.
11: Thanks for having me, Priya.
0: Yeah, of course. And... um I was hoping that we could start off with a bit of an overview of the state of academic employment in so-called Australia because I understand that employment insecurity and issues such as unfair remuneration are pretty rife across the sector and that these have only been exacerbated by the pandemic and the former Morrison government's decisions not to invest in or protect higher education. So before we jump into a bit about what's been happening at the University of Sydney, could you briefly speak to this broader context?
11: Yeah, of course. I mean, when you think about universities, you think generally about sort of white-collar workers who are on good salaries. But that image is very far from, from today's reality. Um, across the sector nationally, only about one in three jobs is ongoing. So there's just a massive proportion of casualisation and a fixed-term contract. So job insecurity um, is is a very prominent part of the employment picture in universities across the country, Um, and that was already the case before the pandemic. The pandemic um, led to even fewer jobs across the sector. There were about 40,000 jobs that were lost um, in public tertiary education in the year up to last May, Um, and we know that a lot of those jobs... Job losses were sort of uh, the excuse, or the pandemic served as an excuse for restructures that managements at universities had Mm. been wanting to undertake for a long time. So, you know, those people who do have jobs, if you're lucky enough to be in the minority with an ongoing job, whether you're an academic staff member or an administrative or support staff member, you generally have a crushing workload. Um... And if you're a casualised staff member, you not only have a, ca- a crushing workload, but you're also subject to very serious wage theft. Mm-hmm. And one of the real defining features, I think, of universities at the moment, Priya, um and it's just so positive to see, is the extent to which casualised university workers, uh, through, through the NTU and, and independently of it as well, have begun to fight back... Um, justice at work and an end to the just intolerable levels of wage theft that that they've been subject to for such a long time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's just been so insidious to see that even while there are, you know, these active uh, pushbacks against wage theft, um, that, as you've mentioned, universities have sort of used the pandemic as an excuse to sort of crack down further and implement, um, you know, these extreme austerity measures, uh, which has resulted in some... Pretty uh, interesting results for their surpluses, which we'll talk about later. Um, But can you tell us about what led to academic staff at the University of Sydney deciding to strike and what some of your key goals are? Because from what you've said before, uh, these pressures have obviously been building for some time. But what was the breaking point?
11: Sure. I mean, maybe the first thing to say is that the strike at Sydney Uni that we had on Tuesday of this week and then the week before, Uh, and then on May 11, 12, was not just by academic workers. So the NTEU is an industry union, so it's a union for everybody who works at the university, whether they are academics or whether they're library workers, support staff in labs, administrative workers. So so we we had a total university shutdown um, because of that that fact, because our union, you know, embraces everybody who works at the university, regardless of what they do. and we've been working we've been negotiating with management since August last year we have had you know so many hours of negotiations with them um, across the table um, and we we haven't achieved or they've refused to budge on our members key priorities and they're about things precisely like reducing overwork um, bringing serious improvements to job security and um, Ending long-term exploitative casualisation at, at the university, um, putting an end to the sort of punitive and obstructive restructure and change management practices that, that our administration, like lots of administrations at universities, continually want to implement. You know, mm-hmm. one restructure after another, poorly justified, makes, makes um, everybody's life at work harder, doesn't achieve any uh, good results other than giving management The opportunity to say that they have, uh, you know, undertaken organisational change in different areas of the university. Mm -hmm. Um, And in particular, um, there are two other issues that were really important to us. One was to preserve the the connection between teaching and research for academics. Um, So a defining feature of a university, I think, is that the people who teach students are also active researchers in their fields. Um, Our management want to undermine that by removing academic staffs right to a 40% research component in their workload. Mm -hmm. And they want to force academics to negotiate how much research they're allowed to do annually with their supervisor. So management are basically just shredding the uh, regulated, protected workloads that academics have um, and have had for years. And they're just saying, look, you work it out with your supervisor and it doesn't matter and, you know you work it out with your supervisor without any protections or controls against all of the power imbalances that um, exist between... So imagine if you're a, you know, a younger female uh, person of colour, perhaps, um, and you're an academic and you're having to negotiate your workload with an, with an older male senior white head of school. I mean, the, the power imbalances mm-hmm. in a situation like that are just clear. Um, our management seem to have no interest in, um, in acknowledging that. So that's one thing that we want to do, mm. to protect academic freedom for a start so that you know, university management doesn't get to decide what research happens when and by who. And the other thing that was really important is introducing enforceable targets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employment um, because Sydney Uni hasn't... Uh, the, the proportion of First Nations staff at the uni hasn't grown for 10 years. When management came to us with their proposals for our next collective agreement, there wasn't a single word in it about First Nations staff. You couldn't find the word Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in the document, um, and that's simply not good enough for mm. you know a university like Sydney University, which is such a you know it's a it's an institution that is deeply complicit with the with the colonisation. I mean, of, of, of this country and the and mm. the you know, the, the solidification of of discrimination and dispossession against yeah. Aboriginal people. We have an obligation and our management has to recognise that.
0: Absolutely. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's also... There's a broader conversation to be had here and I'm sure you're very familiar with it about the transformation of organisational culture to actually improve retention of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff. You know, um, having um, people come in the door but also making sure that... There is an organisational environment that actually supports, um, you know, academic and administrative staff to to thrive. And um, I'm wondering how, uh, if at all, has the University of Sydney responded to some of your actions?
11: Yeah, well, first they tried to ignore us. Um, you know, we were told at the enterprise bargaining table that strike action was simply irrelevant. You know. Um, You might have thought that when thousands of university staff and also, you know, students um, take the quite bold step of going on strike for two full days at the start of a campaign and then following that up very shortly afterwards with another 24-hour strike, you might have thought that that would send management a signal that all was not well at the university and that they really needed to start listening um, and negotiating in good faith. But But no, they told us that... Striking was just going to be irrelevant, and that the only thing, so they think, that is going to um, make any difference is the, the negotiations at the bargaining table. They've also tried to stigmatise union members in a most disgraceful way, and of course, um, they have uh, taken everything online. So, for those of those of our colleagues who uh, don't support the union and were ready to strike a break. Um, disgracefully, in my view, in the last in, in the last couple of, of weeks when we've had industrial action, there's been teaching that's gone online and administrative work and meetings that have gone online. Now, I'd like to think that there hasn't been nearly as much work online as the university administration um, would like, because the support for the NTEU's claims on campus is actually pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But nevertheless, the new digital environment we're in does give management a way of, uh, you know, strike-breaking digitally. We did, though, have digital pickets. You know, we put Mm-hmm-hmm. on digital events, digital strike events, to provide a um, uh, an alternative to, to online work. Yeah. They were a success. And we also shut the campus down. Mm. I mean, you know, the Vice-Chancellor might like to think, what's the use of his, if his big, shiny campus? if there are no if there are no students or staff on it uh, on strike days and that was absolutely the the case the place was absolutely deserted.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the University of Sydney campus, like the University of Melbourne and it has its own postcode, it's a gigantic campus and if you sort of look down the main walkway at the University of Sydney, there've just been some excellent pictures coming out from the NTEU and other people associated with the strike showing the the whole place completely deserted. I mean this is just such a classic example um you know unfortunately being sort of tampered with uh by online um workarounds but nonetheless extremely powerful example of you know what it means to withdraw your labor, labor from this system and show uh show the university that they need to take it seriously um so this uh, i i don't really know how to to go into this without kind of laughing with uh, you know just feeling um, completely outraged Um, but this past Monday the 23rd the Sydney Morning Herald reported the university reported an eye-watering one billion dollars of growth in revenue in 2021 and this is the same period during which employees were facing immense downward pressure and significant job cuts so just before we wrap up can you reflect on some of the implications of this massive surplus
11: yeah I mean the surplus was absolutely staggering 1.05 billion dollars and the, uh, you know, the news of it was announced the afternoon before we were going on strike. So I can only imagine the sinking feeling that our management must have experienced when they realised that the the coincidence of, of those, two, those two events. I mean, our members, and I think students as well, are just extraordinarily angry about this prayer. I mean, what it showed... We knew that the university is rich. Um, that's been obvious for a long time. We didn't understand exactly just how stupendously rich it is. And that $1.05 billion has come at the expense of staff, come at the expense of students. It shows that this management, you know, Mark Scott, the current Vice-Chancellor, and his his predecessors have put education and research as a distant second to ensuring a bottom line that is worthy of the corporate sector. It's simply a disgrace. Mm. That's all money that should have been devoted to the vital research and teaching that the institution does, there's no reason whatsoever for a, a, a public ed- education institution like Sydney Uni to have such a staggering surplus. It's a disgraceful waste of waste of funds and uh, lost opportunities. And our staff are we, we're livid about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As as you should be, uh, Nick. Are you are you telling me that? Uh that remuneration for a vice-chancellor of over a million dollars is unreasonable? Ridiculous. (laughs) Um, So just to wrap up, where can people find out more and act in solidarity from a distance?
11: Okay, sure, Priya. So, I mean, there's lots of stuff on social media. There's also been a lot of, a lot of reports in, in the mainstream media, um, and, and not just the mainstream media. Community, community radio, community media has been absolutely fantastic, as usual. Um, if people want to support um, the strike, one thing that they really can do is donate to our strike fund, um, which is a fund we use to compensate our members in hardship, particularly casual members who lose pay through striking. And if you want to make a donation, that would be very greatly appreciated. You can go to nteu-newsouthwales.square.site and make a donation, nteu-newsouthwales.square.site.
1: Excellent.
11: Any any support around the country would be massively appreciated
0: yeah absolutely and we'll pop a link to that in our show notes Nick thank you so much for making the time to chat with us about this today um, and really encourage people to especially just go have a look at those photos and the excellent work that folks have been doing on the ground it's not often that the NTU strikes and you have made an absolutely uh, massive impact here
11: thank you so much Priya
0: and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We're coming up to the end of our show, so we might just do a quick rundown of what we talked about today.
4: Uh, first, we spoke with Navi Curran, who is a producer, artist, and change maker about their recent DJ journey.
3: And then we spoke to Gerald Lumawig, who is a volunteer community organiser for Filipino youth organisation Anak Bayan
0: Melbourne. And then after that, we heard from Tuffy, who's a campaigner with Gungara Environment Centre, about a new bill put forward by the Andrews government, which poses a serious threat to forest protests in the state. And finally, you heard from Nick Reamer, who is from the University of Sydney's NTU branch, speaking with us about strike actions taken by academic workers at the university. And... Um, Just want to let people know that there is a Sorry Day event uh, that is happening today, the 26th of May at North Richmond Community Health and there is a smoking ceremony and community barbecue happening at North Richmond Community Health uh, from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. today, and uh, sorry means that you don't do it again. So please um, yeah, please stay aware of all of that, and uh, we'll catch you next week on Thursday morning breakfast.
3: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
7: For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.